0: Good evening and welcome, Womjinjika. So welcome. My name is Robert Buckingham, and I'm very proud to uh, be the creative director of Impavilion, and delighted to see so many people here this evening. Um, firstly, we'd like to acknowledge the Bunurong people as the traditional custodians on the land in which we meet. We pay our respects to the land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and to the future, and extend that respect to other Aboriginal people present. So. Thank you very much for joining me for the, actually the second M-Talk, the first evening M-Talk. We had our first uh, M-Talk this morning, uh, or at lunchtime, uh, which was hosted by Natalie King, um, my creative associate, and uh, welcomed Mami Katuka, the Chief Curator of the Mori Art Gallery in uh, Tokyo, and Rana Devonport, Director of Auckland Art Gallery in New Zealand, of course. So welcome to you both, and thank you for being here tonight. Um, this uh, presentation is, of course, very exciting because not only do we have the instigator of uh, M Pavilion, Naomi Milgram, we have the architect Amanda Levite, and we have the person who officially opened uh, M Pavilion Martin Roth from the VNA. <laughs> So, um, as you know, Amanda is our 2015 M Pavilion Architect. She's a founder and principal of ALA, uh, the award-winning design and architecture studio based in London. Amanda trained at the, agricult- uh, the agricultural...
1: Thanks! Firstly, it looks like it, doesn't
0: it? Firstly, she studied agriculture and then she, decided, <laughs> then she decided she was more suited to architecture and so moved on. <laughs> the Architectural Association and worked for Richard Rogers, a well-known agriculturist. A well-known farmer. <laughs> before joining Future Systems as a partner in 1989, where she realised brown brown baking buildings including the Media Center that many of us know at Lord's Cricket Ground and of course Selfridge's department store in Birmingham. Um, Amanda has been a, uh, a regular visitor to Melbourne, and therefore she knows, knows all about Melbourne's weather, and so therefore has designed a most beautiful pavilion without walls. Without walls. walls. <laughs> 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 Martin Roth is the director of London's Victoria and Albert Museum. He took the reins in September 2011, uh, continuing a distinguished career of involvement in museums, Galleries and art research that included a 10 year position as Director General of the Dresden State Art Collection and Presidency of the German Museums Association. Martin is a trustee of the British Council, and we're still waiting for a check, (laughs) and the (laughs) (laughs) Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris. He's also a member of the Council of the Royal College of Arts and the Court of Imperial College London. Importantly, uh, while at the v Martin has been working closely with uh, Amanda uh, on the on the redesign of the extension to the Victorian Albert Museum, and he spo- and he flew to Australia specially to open the pavilion. So we're incredibly grateful. Our third uh, third member of the panel um, is Naomi Milgram, um, who uh, many of us know, um, and uh, would like to thank for her generous. Uh, generosity in uh, initiating the M Pavilion project. So, thank you all. So, to the questions. Firstly, to Amanda. So, Amanda, you designed a building without walls. You knew that Melbourne had a lot of weather, but this is probably a little bit about your... What we'd like to talk about, I suppose, is your desire to take risks, but also, as an architect, how you enjoy collaborating with others.
2: Okay, so so the the idea of um, a pavilion without walls was a way of subverting what is a, a normally expected of a building. And we took that further and have designed a structure that is is designed to sway gently in the wind and apparently there was quite a lot of wind here a lot of wind here today quite a lot of movement and that's exactly what's meant to happen so it's about responding to very much to the setting of this fantastic lush parkland to use that as a way of rooting the structure in its place and to feel very much of its place and having been here several times and, and explored the site after we'd been awarded the commission, the extent of the tree canopies is so fabulous here, and they, they create a natural place for meeting. So you take shade under a tree. When it rains, you take cover under a tree. It's a place to picnic. And so the idea was born of creating the sensation of a forest canopy but in a very abstract way and using completely man-made materials and once we'd, we'd, we'd developed that idea, we realised that we couldn't use conventional building materials, that we'd have to look to the composites in, uh, industry and to marine engineering and we were very fortunate that Arab Melbourne on day one, and it was a meeting that I had in um, Melbourne with them at at only two days' notice, introduced me via um, webcam to Toby, who's here tonight at MoldCam, as a composite uh, specialist. And by the end of the conversation, it was incredibly clear to me that we had seriously lucked out, and this was the... Collaborator that we needed for the project because he was completely up for exploring how we could create impossibly thin petals that were translucent, and so this idea of um, developing um, a system of uh, and exploring how to do this became an understanding of how a clear resin, which is actually produced for the surfboard industry and is based, made in France, developed in France, how by adding fibers to that, you make it strong. And that we, what we wanted to do was further strengthen it by adding a layer of carbon fiber strands, which are the black lines that you see on the petals, and express that very much in the way that the veins of a, a leaf are, are visible. And then mold cam through a series of trial and error and experimentation which is rare to find in in a in a fabricator in a maker developed a, a system of two layers of the translucent resin capturing the carbon fiber strands but it was so exacting that you had to find exactly the right degree of set because if the the resin was too wobbly the strands would float to the bottom and if it was too hard the strands wouldn't take and they had to work 24-hour shifts because once the process had started it couldn't stop because of this this laminating process of the the petals and then they are linked together by a carbon fibre spine that then connects to these very slender carbon fibre columns that house all the um, cabling for the lights and for the speakers, where the, 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 for ambient noise, the petals act as a, a giant amplifier.
0: And so Naomi, when, yes. you, for, when you first saw the design, what did you think?
1: I loved it. Just loved <laughs> it from the very beginning. It was true. Absolutely loved it. Um, I think I'd really admired Amanda's work for so long. Um, It was so exciting to work with an architect who was prepared to take huge risks, both with fabrication and ideology. Um, It was very exciting to um, watch this grow. And I think when I was speaking to Alex, who's her, her colleague who came out here, a couple of times to oversee the work, he said to me he thought the success of a project was always being able to see the finished item as the same as you saw the original renders. So Alex was very excited that the original renders represented the finished um, pavilion so closely.
2: Which actually, at the time that we, we created those renders, we had a hunch how to do it, but we hadn't had the conversation and the extensive kind of research collaboration with MoldCam. So it was MoldCam who turned a hunch and a design into reality.
0: And Amanda, perhaps you might like to talk about the time scale.
2: Um, so the, from being awarded the commission to now is um, just under a year. So it was a very... Tight timescale, particularly when you're working opposite ends of the world, which is logistically quite um, complicated because it means a lot of telephone calls at very odd times of day and night. And that was our principal method of communication with Moldcow, um, with Cane Construction, and with Arup in Melbourne, but um, supplemented by visits from my associate Alex, who came out and, and worked with the team. So it really is a very Anglo-Australian collaboration and and one that I feel very, very proud of.
0: And I suppose also, particularly when you've been working on two slightly larger cultural institutions, one in Lisbon and one in London, the V&A. Martin, would you like to talk, tell us a little bit about what the, how you, uh, the plans for the Victoria and Albert Museum extension?
3: Yeah, true. But nobody told me about the climate situation in Melbourne before I arrived.
1: (laughs) No one told you about what? No,
3: really, about the climate. I mean, how do you make that from 37 to what is it now, 17?
1: (laughs) 17.
3: Tough, honestly. So that's reason why you need an open pavilion. Okay. (laughs) London is completely different. We have stable weather situations. there. No, sorry. The, um, I'm, ju- I'm just impressed by it. Um, it's difficult if you don't know exactly how the location of the V&A is. But uh, the V&A is a part of a uh, of an um, how to say that very very unusual canvas of the nineteenth century. It's um, the le- still the legacy, or not still it's the legacy of the first. World Fair, the 1851 Great Exhibition. So all the institutions along Exhibition Road, for those who've been to London, I'm sure you all have been to London, um, it's, it's like a necklace, different institutions, from Imperial College to Royal Albert Hall, Science Museum, Natural History Museum. It's great, it's a, it's a think tank, it's a brain trust. Um, 30,000 students in Imperial College, 28 million people walking on Exhibition Road every year, up and down. So um, the VNA is part of that system. Brilliant institutions. Unfortunately, the entrance base of the VNA is on Cromwell Road, more or less in the other di- more or less in the other direction in order to create a space for the public, in order to open the museum, not only the, in terms of the concept, not only in terms of what we are doing, um, but to make it accessible, to make it easy approachable, we decided to change the location. And what I think is still a kind of miracle, there was a courtyard in the VNA. I mean, actually, the, probably there, is, there was still a courtyard because they had the idea of um, a spiral built by Liebeskind in in the 90s, and you probably know the discussion about that spiral. And unfortunately, unfortunately it never happened. Okay. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it was a bit of a weird idea in that time. It was more like a sculpture, but not a gallery. It was a staircase, to be honest. Did um, I <laughs> say something wrong? It's no, cool, no. it's perfect, <laughs> but, perfect. So, like Naomi, I'm I'm really very happy and. Um, just just enjoy to work with Amanda on that new project opening the museum, opening in terms of our strategies our program, our content but having that courtyard open to Exhibition Road as a public space creating a thousand square square meter new exhibition space underground having a restaurant, a museum shop But again, it's a public space. And if you want to talk about details, like why do we need a ceramic floor? Porcelain. Porcelain. (laughs) Um, Then ask Amanda, because she's the expert. And as I said yesterday night in my speech, and I mean it in a very, very positive sense, because I really admire what Amanda is doing. Um, don't argue with her because if she's so committed and if she has an idea, she will do it. So when you come to the v V&A, next time, you see uh, porcelain. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amanda, the experience of architecture. I mean, I think.
3: No, no. I mean, honestly, I, I really ask Amanda to explain what that porcelain floor means. Amanda, <laughs> please explain the porcelain, Amanda,
0: <laughs> I, explain the porcelain I explain floor.
2: The, okay, I'm going to make a kind of not too oblique connection between the porcelain and amphitheatre. And so research is very much in our DNA. It's kind of what drives us. It's a desire to just advance the debate in however modest way, whether that's through materials, through conceptual thinking, or through a more formal way. Um, and here we've certainly done it with the, um, the exploration and um, the new way in which we've used composites. But at the v we wanted to create a courtyard that had real significance as a public social space and because it's surrounded by three fantastic historic elevations we wanted it to have a quality that was completely unique and special and so we we kind of imagined the courtyard as an outdoor living room as an outdoor gallery if you like as a space to be curated but it wasn't enough for us to just imagine that you'd have Portland stone or granite or whatever. The, the surface of the courtyard needed to be something special and, and that was for, for two reasons. Um, one was because the, the kind of paradox of the VNA project is the big event is below ground and therefore invisible and one of the concepts that drove our thinking was how do you make visible the invisible and it's an abstract concept which is really, really interesting. And our, the, the way that we wrestled with that paradox was to imagine that the, the, the pattern of the tiles, and we didn't know what they were made of at that point, but the pattern of the tiles of the courtyard are somehow an expression of the geometry of the structure which supports the courtyard, which in turn is the ceiling of the gallery below. So we took this very kind of complex, um, three-dimensional geometry of a folded plate, which is the structural solution for spanning 38 metres, which is what the gallery does. And there's a big level difference between the street and the museum, and so this structure had to deal with that level difference. And we then laid it as a two-dimensional, took a three-dimensional form, laid it out as a two-dimensional surface, and manipulated it to create a pattern, which is the pattern of the tiles for the the courtyard and in that way we make visible the invisible because you can at a certain point in the courtyard you can look down into the the gallery below and we've conceptualized that opening as though it were an empty museum vitrine and in the vitrine you see the folded plate so I think you will have this kind of intuitive understanding of the relationship between the two and then the other the, uh, the, the reason for the porcelain became very obsessed with um, ceramics. So, an e- easy mistake to make, Martin. Very obsessed with ceramics. The VNA has one of the most important ceramics collections in the world, and there are some beautiful ceramics embedded into the building of the VNA, either decoratively or there's a staircase in ceramic. and. We decided at that point and this even at the competition stage that we would have a ceramic courtyard because that would allow us to introduce color and create this very particular um, characteristic but as we were embarking on what i thought would be six months research which then turned into two and a half years research we discovered through working with different fabricators different makers different manufacturers we discovered porcelain as of course you know not discovering porcelain but but we understood the the properties that porcelain had, which were far superior to ceramic it 's much harder it 's harder than granite it 's harder than portland stone it 's completely impervious to water so there 's no problem with um, with with freezing and, and frost but Porcelain and it the base color of the clay is this incredibly beautiful white slightly bluish grayish white It has a kind of finesse and a nuance that is just completely different from the more biscuity quality of, of a ceramic base and We were determined to find a way to make this work, but it had never been used as an external paving um Material you usually see porcelain used as a faience material, or in Victorian times it was used a little bit on domestic porches, but completely slippery. And having a non-slip space in a public space is totally critical. So we spent two and a half years finding a way of adding mullite um, to the porcelain clay to give it some friction to make it non-slip, and then we put grooves into it, and those grooves are a reflection of the pattern. And in the grooves we glaze it. Um, and it's a glaze that's quite watery, and it was inspired by some of the very beautiful Chinese, ancient Chinese um, glazes that you can see in the V&A. So that's the the story My, of. The may I
3: add something? I mean, the reason why I think it's so important, and um, it's because I mean, probably three different um, topics. One is it's a museum. It's um, collection of knowledge, not only objects. It's collection of knowledge. So working together on this research program, I think was just bringing the inside of the museum out to the public and making it as part of, part of that design process. Secondly, because um, the VNA and a it's strategy that I really like and always admired, never tried to copy something in the past. So, ever was added to the museum in terms of new construction, renovation is always contemporary, state of the arts. So it's a combination of the inside of the museum and the outside of the museum. Actually, I had three topics, but no, it's two.
0: Um, Naomi, that sort of brings us, I suppose, to the role of civic spaces or social spaces. Um, Why, I suppose, many people know, but would you like to talk a little bit why why you wanted this space? Why you wanted the pavilion in this garden?
1: Um, Well, this garden's been a very special garden and um, underutilised greatly. As you can see, it's part of the cultural spine. Um, But um, the City of Melbourne felt that it had been underutilised for many, many years. In 1989, 1990 and 1991, John Truscott, who was the founder of the Spoleto Melbourne Festival, we called the Spoleto Festival originally, based on the Spoleto Festival, then called the Melbourne Festival, he decided that he wanted to bring the festival to the outdoors. The festival had been more or less enclosed in um, spaces before and he wanted to bring it to the outdoors. So he spanned some amazing bridges across St Kilda Road and then in '89 he built a tea house here in this very spot and in '91 and '92 he built two pavilions here called Botanica 1 and Botanica 2, Both of those were like a mini Chelsea flower show um, and each one had themed, um, so some were vegetables, some were farmyards, some were beautiful homes, all the way through that you could discover different environments. So he made those in 91 and 92. So this garden was always very special. And it seemed to me that the cultural spine wasn't actually moving away from the right-hand side of St Kilda Road and that there was an opportunity to link this area with the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl and the Botanical Gardens so that this could actually be part of the cultural spine as well. So this was the only garden I wanted and thankfully the city agreed.
3: What do you mean with cultural spine? It's the museum, it's theatre down there?
1: Well actually our cultural spine theater. starts much further up at the Melbourne Museum and then goes to the uh, State Library, then works its way down to ACME, then goes across here to um, the Arts Centre, Hamer Hall, the NGV, then goes further down here to the Melbourne Recital Centre, further down Sturt Street to Acker and the Malt House. So this is really called the Cultural Spine. Exactly. Zigzag, yes. And uh, we're trying to develop Sturt Street to um, encourage more arts organisations to go there. But there's also, um, over this side, um, the largest pavilion, the Sydney Meyer Music Bowl, on that side, the Botanical Gardens, with its own pavilions. Um, and it seemed an obvious omission that this wasn't being used. The festival's actually got their hub on this side, haven't they, Robert? That's right. So um, we like to think that we're all encouraging the growth of the cultural precinct.
0: And, of course, as a good merchant, you understood adjacency. And I also, did understand adjacency. And also the lease agreement wasn't too bad.
1: The lease agreement was very good, unusual for a landlord, very unusual. But also from a transport point of view, it was very important that um, people could actually access, because the (coughs) pavilion is all about access, Um, and of course being visible to the public was very important.
0: Martin, one of the things I suppose, there's a lot of talk, and you've spoken about, uh, architecture and the Im- the importance of building um, and building new new extensions to buildings um, and employing architects and there has been I suppose over the last certainly 20 30 years uh, a lot of star architecture in the museum world. Um, what about content?
3: Yeah, what about content? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think you refer there was a kind of misunderstanding in an interview that I gave two days ago I said in an ironic way um, if you're an American oh.
1: <laughs> now museum's, direct,
3: museum's director you 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 don't exist if you are not building um, if you don't have a construction you are not a museum's director and um, I mean I'm difficult to say but I think I mean it it's um if you want to be, if you have a kind of recognition, if you want to attract sponsors, you have to build. If you are a Chinese politician, you have to build a museum. Otherwise, you are not a politician. (laughs) Um, I mean, in 2012, 13, um, there was one museum opened every day on average in China. Uh, I don't think, I mean, yeah, you know what I want to say. So what I mean is, there is uh, I think there's an unbalanced situation doing what you can offer to a public and space architecture locations. And um, yeah, it's not a provocation, I really mean it. I think we have too many museums in Europe. Um, at least for Germany, we had uh, in 2006, we had 3,000 museums, now it's 7,000, 7,000 museums. Um, there, is, there is a hype there is an interest but there is also an inflation and I I insist on quality quality in architecture quality in the collection in research um, and, that's, and then experiments at the same time and what we have in here I think that's a very positive way of combining architecture, public space experiment, <laughs> laboratorium um, but if it comes to Museum in itself and construction, I think we have to um, slow down. Yeah, be more conscious what we want to do.
1: Yeah, but isn't the real issue also that operational funding is being cut back all the time by governments? as well
3: so you mean in the end you have a kind of shell but nothing in—in in not and enough no money can, to, yeah. to run it
1: yeah absolutely
3: That's part it's of not it
1: enough way. money to run the ones we already have I read a number um, that the creative industries put together that Victoria alone has 700 museums this state mm. now they might be very small but they say that we have 700 museums in this state
3: and the question is if we have the demand for all those institutions
0: that's yeah, yeah. And the content, mm-hmm. um, Amanda. You designing for designing for cultural institutions. Is it? What are the What are the major differences? Are there any differences between designing uh, for a museum uh, compared to designing for uh, a redevelopment of a residential slash?
2: Yeah, ma- ma- massive difference. I mean, the first difference is the, the sense of responsibility. That comes particularly when you 're working on something like the VNA, where you know it 's part of britain 's heritage it 's a really really important part of british her- britain 's heritage, so to be adding to that um, is a is a wonderful privilege but it 's also a, a massive sense of responsibility and, and that 's where it, it's you know the, the narrative that runs through our project there is about honouring the past but also celebrating the future and finding a narrative that helps you make that case. The other thing that's very different working with a museum which I found deeply, deeply frustrating at the beginning is the kind of Neanderthal pace of decision-making.
3: No, 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 no. no. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's
2: <laughs> but <laughs> but, um, I came to really admire and respect it because what it the, the reason for that is that every decision, every every move has because it is because it's a, a legacy because it's heritage. Every every move has to be interrogated, forensically interrogated. Every option has to be explored before a decision is made, and it's the right thing to do. And I was then when we embarked on this. Um, period of research into the porcelain it was then that I came to value the slow pace of a museum because in a commercial project there is no way you'd have had the liberty of time to explore something which took the time that it took we didn't really know where it was going to end up and 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 one thing that I would like to say which is just a bit tangential but is another kind of link between the two projects is are my two clients, because when you, when you go to your client and you say, we want to do this, we want to explore, we want to experiment, and we're actually not sure where it's going, obviously we don't say that, um, you're asking them to trust you. And Naomi trusted us. And the V&A, we were asking them to trust us, that we would come up with a solution. Even though it was two and a half years down the line, and we didn't know what that solution was, and and there's, I think there's no way that you would have a um, a commercial client who would even countenance being, you know, who, who would think it was quite impudent to be to be asked that question. But but that's where real progress happens, and that's where, for me, the real excitement is on, on any project.
1: And we didn't have the luxury of time either.
2: No, we were lucky. We, we were lucky in
3: Molkham. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, the problem is just to edit, it's, it's, it's those times are over when you had a government paying for an extension like or, or construction like the one we discussed right now. It's all fundraising, it's all fundraised money. So it's not only a responsibility in, inside, I mean, inside the VA or the trustees, it's working with all those donors and supporters so it is um, it is not only a construction, it's really kind of social movement.
0: And Martin, in terms of an institution like the VA, A, obviously uh, an amazing uh, repository of uh, a huge collection, in terms of engaging new audiences um, can you want to talk about some of the ways in which you uh, try and bring different ideas into that historic setting?
3: You mean in terms of architecture or in general?
0: I think in general. Well, no, let's keep it to architecture.
3: Yeah, because that's a very broad theme. Um, <laughs> the, um, do, you, do you agree that I'm a bit brutal?
1: Uh, that you're a bit brutal? Mm. no.
3: No,. Not okay. really. So I don't give you an answer.
1: <laughs> 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 but make, no, I think we, but actually,
3: make, I may make it really short, but I think there is a kind of crisis of the art or the contemporary art, and I, and we, we, we've seen saw a lot of not very meaningful exhibitions and biennales and so on. And uh, I think a lot of people come, including myself, coming back to design and arch, and architecture, engineering, urbanism. Um, if you see the f- floor plan of the Vienna in the ni- late nineteenth century, there was a lot of architecture, urbanism, engineering, um, and that helped to shape a great institution. So um, to come back to the future, in this case, I think isn't isn't too bad. So
0: and you actually have an exhibition of engineering at the moment. We yeah. work on an
3: ex- yeah, We have a kind of series of exhibitions on engineering and architecture, and, uh, following us from. Um, this amazing person Olive Arab the founder of Arab to um, engineering and car design and much much more so um, we try to combine it but we have um, more architectural projects for the V&A during the upcoming years like we build a museum in Dundee in Scotland um, have another project in East London uh, another one in Shenzhen, so, uh, a museum in China, by the way.
0: Um,
3: so um, we tried to add constructions to that topic, real space.
0: And Amanda, you actually did a, an intervention or a small temporary piece of architecture... With the V&A through the London design Festival yes
2: I mean this was a, another of our risk-taking ventures. Um, it was a commission by the London Design Festival to work with American hardwood and to do something at the entrance to the VNA. and we came up with the idea of using this particular hardwood as a self-supporting structure and it had never been used. Structurally, let alone self-supporting. Um, anyway, the, the the design side of it, and again, we worked with Arup, was relatively straightforward. It was very complex, but it was relatively straightforward. What we had entirely <coughs> underestimated was the complexity of erection of this rather complicated um, structure, and that coincided with the first week of Martin's appointment at the VNA so we have i'd only we have a just positive,
3: very good relationship, <laughs> only
2: but. just been introduced to him and um, in in his first week uh, we had to this 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 timber arch which framed the 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 a entrance on Cromwell Road and was you know it was a a, a, a different expression of the the intricacy and the ornamentalism of the stone carving, and it was throwing a spotlight onto the VNA over the London Design Festival, um, it was only supposed to take four days, and we had to go to Martin and tell him that actually you know there were some really big structural, serious issues, and we had to go back and rethink how to erect it, and would he mind closing the main entrance to the VNA for two weeks? <laughs>
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and to um, Martin's great credit, yeah. Oh yeah. We are close,
3: <laughs> close friends. Today. Yeah. Um
2: But but the the effect of that was quite interesting. I think sometimes when you're you know you're you're pushing boundaries. Yes, you know, the public got really pissed off. It was really inconvenient to have to walk all the way around the corner to another entrance. But sometimes I think it's important to stop people in their tracks, and sometimes a little bit of inconvenience makes think- people think harder about things. Um, so I think in the end it was a, it was a very positive story.
1: Were yeah. you happy, Martin? <laughs>
3: was a crucial moment in my career.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Just at the beginning.
3: No, actually, I mean, it's an old anecdote and we talked about that too often, but the situation was quite complicated because uh, a, a friend of mine, a director of a museum in Paris, was in London at that weekend and called me on a Saturday and said, actually, do you, re- you are the new director, Martin. Do you really want to avoid public and close the doors so that nobody can come in? that was my start in the v but Robert if I can just add something I mean maybe it was a bit wrong what I was saying but I mean is it's, I think we need this overlap so probably better to use the word synergy um, or synergies of um, <coughs> different art forms so it's from architecture to contemporary art from design to performance and I think um, for example the London Design Festival is one of those um, particular times pr- in the year where we used to change our understanding perception having more spaces like a laboratory, <coughs> challenge the museum challenge the collection so it's not ignoring one part and going in another direction it's more like asking questions why are the objects and why are new yeah a, a new way of, of perform inside the museum
0: and Naomi, I mean, we've talked about, to some extent, that sort of integration and that, to some extent, being part of Melbourne's DNA, I suppose, that there's a lot of interconnection between art forms and, mm-hmm. and artists and designers. Has this... You, this is year two. How different is year two and how do you feel it's changed?
1: Well, I think everybody would agree that this pavilion is very, very different to Sean's. Even Sean has commented on that, that the... Closed box, the beautiful jewel that he placed here is very different to the sort of elegant, feminine, soft, beautiful open space here. Um, So there are certainly very physical differences about it. I think also the collaborations that we um, framed last year We were, in a way, sort of touching on things that we really just wanted to engage people with. Amanda's got a very strong view about the sorts of things that she wants to see in this space. Um, One of them in particular is reading children's bedtime stories, so we'll let you know when that happens. So we're collaborating with the State Library on that. So it was very... um, were very different to have an architect who wanted to actually influence the programming and that was a significant difference. Um, The lease line was a little bit expanded here so we um, had to ask our landlords for a little bit of expansion. Amanda wanted to expand so the 15 metre by 10 metre is actually on the diagonal here whereas um, Sean's was 12 metres by 12 metres, it was on the square and then Amanda's beautiful petals that seep out into the garden actually extend that even further than that so we're very close to the mound that we built last year um, and uh, hopefully the council are happy with that
0: and also like all, many beautiful things there's a lot that's hidden there's a very large uh, very large framework underneath the grass and underneath this building yep. but um, to make it work um, one of the things I suppose Naomi this, the, the way in which the building or maybe to Amanda one of the challenges of course was the only brief was coverage for about 150 people and room for a kiosk but then of course there was the added challenge that it was not only it was a temporary building but it had to be demounted and then it would become a permanent building was that hard?
2: Yeah that's really hard so you're given a brief for a pavilion and it's there for four months and so you kind of Conceive it as a temporary structure, and then we were told actually it's going to be permanent. So there's a whole different um, criteria of designing for a, a permanent building that's much more exacting. So Arab had to calculate the structure to deal with a 50-year wind, which obviously, if it was only here for four months, we wouldn't have had to do.
1: Well, you might have to in Melbourne. You might have to. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> anyway, thankfully, we have done. Um, so, so that is always, it, uh, and things that are demountable, you know, it, it, it implies a certain modularity. So it's a certain way of thinking, and even things like the, the decking, you know, that that is a, is a modular system, and the petals are a modular system as well, but but very different, um, very different mm-hmm. geometries. So the petals are a very soft interlocking, um, system, and and here it's a more <coughs> rigid one. But that was a very deliberate. Um, Contrast?
1: Part of the problem with that was that the council only give us six weeks, so it has to actually come in like a kit form where we can um, just build the structure underneath, but everything else has to be kit formed. And then we only have, I think it's four weeks to actually pick up the pavilion and move it again.
0: Three. Three weeks, sorry. And Naomi, the, the move, and then I'll open it up to questions. The move, obviously, <coughs> what's exciting is that this week we actually have two pavilions yeah. in Melbourne. The first M Pavilion opened at the Hellenic Museum uh, on Thursday. And so we encourage everyone to go and see uh, the Sean Godsall Pavilion in its new location, which is behind a, a neoclassical building, um, a very beautiful neoclassical building, and it's in their courtyard behind. Um, that sort of evolved partly because of the City of Melbourne, didn't
1: it, Naomi? Um, Yes, certainly the partnership with the City of Melbourne has been an extraordinary one, where when I went in the beginning to talk to them about the idea of four architectural gems for the City of Melbourne, not only to be temporary, but also to have a life after as a gift to the city, um, (coughs) they were ecstatic. And um, so we talked about where these buildings could possibly go. And um, Sean's building was... Um, perfectly positioned to be in a courtyard, and the Hellenic Museum has this beautiful courtyard behind it, which has two plane trees which I think are heritage listed, and it just fitted so neatly between the two it was like it was meant to be. So um, we haven't discussed where this one's going to go yet.
0: All right, I think it probably would be nice to open the floor to questions, so if anyone has any questions, there's one over here. Oh, we have a microphone over there. <laughs> There's a question down here.
2: Thank you. Um, it sounds evident to me that the design for this was always or pretty much that it was going to be without walls. And I'm just wondering with the programming of the events, like were the events programmed as part of that? Not Because, you know, as we've all acknowledged, Melbourne is insane weather-wise and <laughs> I remember last year. <laughs> um, so was the programming of events or how it's going to be managed
1: like or part of that whole discussion right from the beginning? Uh, no, I. Um, my vision was never um, to go the other way round. This was about building an architectural gem, which was about a meeting place, which was almost utopian, not connected to anything, that people could enjoy either to sit, experience, be outside, be inside. It was never about the programming. It was always about the architecture. So the programming is part of the risk. It could rain. It could not rain. It could be very windy and boiling hot like it was this morning. Um, But it was never about the programming. It was always about the architecture and design. So, no. And you're prepared for all weather. So you have blankets and ponchos. We had blankets last year. We have umbrellas. We have ponchos. We have everything to aid um, all weather conditions.
0: And I think one of the most interesting things was last year, too, the way in which... Um, I think people responded to the architecture and that was what was exciting from a programming point of view, how people dealt with the fact that there weren't big video screens, they dealt with the fact that um, the building wasn't centrally heated, and and in a way they used that, and some of the most exciting programming was ones in which people really engaged with the architecture
1: Susan's going to model our poncho she's got one over there
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we had some um, fashion designers from RMIT uh, who were going to do a show on the 21st of uh, um, November. And so they were here today looking at <laughs> where they might position a dressing room. So it'll be interesting to see how they will um, um, rise to the challenge.
2: Hello. Uh, Amanda, so I just students like careers in the design process with the pencil and the paper do you have anything else to help you develop the shape, the, shape, the form or the design? Sorry, have we developed Be- a... Beside the pencil and the paper yeah. that you draw in and like in the design process is there, is there have anything else that help you to develop the shape, well, the form? We, we have pencil and paper we have um, computers which most of uh, my office I'm afraid I can't draw on the computer but um, the rest of my office can and they're very good at it um, but the I think one of the most important um, sort of metiers for design is is making models and, and not having professional models I mean actual making models one, one of the things that I feel very strongly about that, that you know I'm a lot older than most of the people in my office so I'm of a different generation and and we were brought up (coughs) with pencil and paper and making models and it was very kind of visceral and now you have the screen and there's this sort of sense of being one step removed and the, you know, people are so clever with computers, they're so fluent, they're so adapt at showing you something on screen. In 3D, look, we're walking around it. Look, we can turn it around. And then they see a problem. And it's almost a kind of, they're not even conscious of doing it. They, they see the problem and they flip the screen to another view. And it drives me insane. So, uh, and I know I'm being conned. So I really insist that you get away from your computer and you go to the model room and you make a model. Because when you have a physical model in front of you, however crude, it doesn't matter. The... All the mistakes are exposed and you cannot escape from them. And, and I think it's, a, it, 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 it's this whole kind of, um, you know, the relationship between the intellect and, and the hand. I, I think that we have to get that back and to reinforce its significance alongside with computer drawing. <coughs>
1: I'm uh, Amanda, I'm interested in how you've designed it to um, cope with the rain, and your, your petals and the columns remind me of Gaudi's Park in Barcelona, where the columns underneath the park take the, the rainwater <coughs> down from above and down the columns. I was a bit taken aback when you said that the, um, all the wires going up to the lighting, et cetera, are going up these columns, but is there a tube for water? No,
2: the, ah. the way that we deal with water, if you if you look at it from a distance, you'll see that there are many layers to the petals. And so we've designed it that when it, <coughs> sorry, the <taping> table, uh, <coughs> when it rains, the water cascades down to the perimeter and the edges. I haven't actually Seen it um, raining,
1: but, but
0: if you, if you wait Amanda, the Amanda,
1: I was just going to say,
2: Amanda.
0: Amanda actually hasn't seen it rain in Melbourne. No, no, she hasn't.
1: <laughs> just wait till she leaves tomorrow; it'll be a oh downpour. God, I'm
0: going.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Is it? No.
2: Oh,
3: good. No, let's go. <laughs> so oh, that's, <laughs>
0: that's really unfortunate. We're also approaching approaching um, sunset and at uh, every sunset, there is a sunset <coughs> ritual. So Amanda, maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about, obviously there's a daytime life or a daytime um, character to the building. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you envisaged the building at night?
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in the, this is quite a responsive building, whether it's responsive to its context or the climate and the weather, but also to light conditions. So during the day when it's sunny, um You get really beautiful um, shadows cast on the deck and on the um, on the grass of of the petals and this rather kind of dreamy um, quality underneath them <coughs> and then, as dusk falls and the lights come on, you get a completely—it's <laughs> really bad a completely different um, experience where you're no longer so aware of the the columns you're just aware of the canopy as a a surface because it becomes illuminated and it can either be illuminated with the the halo lights or it can be illuminated as a kind of wash of light and there's some fantastic um, drone footage that shows which really looks sort of otherworldly which shows you the kind of plan view of the the canopy and i hope that you know from some of the high-rise buildings around that you will have this view because i think it is quite spectacular and then from outside of the pavilion you can really read the very very thin edge this sort of three millimeter edge of the the petals which is quite extraordinary given how how far they're spanning
0: and naomi there was a commission (coughs) The idea of a commission for the building in terms of sound and lighting?
1: Um, yes. We were very lucky actually to be working with Ben Collin um, and also Matthias Shack Arnott from um, Speak Percussion and um, I'm hoping it's going to start pretty soon. Sam, is it going to start? Yes. <laughs> there will be light and there will be sound. <laughs>
0: So I think at that point, what I, unless there's any other questions, I think I'd like to thank Amanda Levite, uh, Martin Roth, and Naomi Milgram for seeking <laughs> this.
1: Thank you.